Well, good morning. Good to see each one of you here this morning. Good morning. It's good for us to be here, Faith and I and Sarah. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I picked up a little bit of a cold. You know, we left Florida. It was about 90 degrees, 91, 92. I think the heat index was over 100 for the last two weeks. And uh, looking forward to getting some cool weather. But we got to New Jersey, and it was really cool weather. And it was about 61 degrees. And Sarah thought it would be a good idea to go to see a baseball game. So I went to see the Trenton Thunder play. And a little rainy. It was... I think it was 61 degrees in the rain. And um, they went off to get some snacks, and they didn't come back for like an hour and a half. And in a way, but I'm sitting in the rain in my little windbreaker. But anyway, I picked up something. And uh, anyway, it's great to be with you uh, this morning. I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to First uh, Peter, chapter 5. First Peter and chapter 5. Just as we um, turn in there, I just want to share a few things uh, about some of the work we're involved. We appreciate, you know, your financial support that you send each month, and um, and we appreciate that very, very much, and your prayer for us. And we've seen, we've had a good year uh, at Land Lakes. We had a baptism in March, and we had um, we had four people baptized. Um, and so that was very, very encouraged. We have a lady named Norma. Norma is a Filipino lady, and uh, she's about 70 years old. And um, and she, we just came to know her recently. Uh, Faith has a Bible study on, on, on Wednesday mornings, and our neighbor, uh, she's been having a Bible study with for a while, she's Filipino, her name's Christina. And uh, <coughs> lately, we have another lady at the chapel, and she's been working on Sunday morning, so she comes out on Wednesday, and she's Filipino. So, uh, so Connie, the lady who works on Sunday mornings, she was in the dollar store, and she was buying something. Struck up a conversation with another lady, Filipino lady, and uh, and she said, "Well, I have to go." I said, "I have to go to a Bible study." She said, "Well, I want to come to a Bible study. I just, I just moved here. I want to come to a Bible study." So she said, okay, you can come. So she came, and so they've been coming uh, for a while, and then we're having the baptism. She said, I want to be baptized. So it was uh, wonderful to see her baptized and a number of other people uh, baptized. So it was it was wonderful. You know, we're strong Christians in Florida. We're really brave and strong because we baptize. We have a baptism in lakes, alligator infested <laughs> lakes, water moccasin infested lakes, and here we got Vincent. He knows all about the lakes of Florida. You know, right? Right, right? Alligator infested. That's right. Absolutely, absolutely. So we baptize right there, very quickly. We don't spend a lot of time in the water. We get in, we get out, and uh, that's about it. Uh, but uh, but anyway, it's been encouraging to see some of these kinds of things. We've had some new people come. And uh, and so we've been very very pleased. We're we're praying uh, <clears throat> to add a new elder. We have three elders. And we have two deacons, two official deacons. Some some chapels don't have we have deacons. We have two deacons, and we have three elders. And we really want to add another elder. 
And so you can pray towards that end. We have somebody in mind. I'm not sure the Lord is speaking to him in the same way he's speaking to us, but uh, hopefully that our minds will will come together, and I think he would be an excellent excellent elder at Atlanta Lakes Bible Chapel. So those are some things you can pray about. We're also um, working towards a new building. And um, Vincent's been in our building. It's a modular building, and we've had it for 14 or 15 years, 14 years, I think. And uh, and so anyway, it's beginning to have some problems. That's one part of it. Another part of it is that we're outgrowing the building. And it seats about 100, 100 people, twice what you have here. Uh, probably it seats, I'm sorry, you have twice that we have. Uh, and so we are, we are hoping to build something a little larger, something more permanent, and, um, and have some more space. Um, so we might get 85 people on a Sunday morning, but... After they finish sitting and they get up and they begin to fellowship, that's where the problem comes in because we don't have any space for that. We don't have any space for that fellowship part. So, um, so anyway, if you could pray about that, we'd really, really appreciate it. Well, we have our Bibles open in First uh, <clears throat> Peter chapter five. We want to look at the last part of the chapter. Usually, when you get to the last part of the chapter, you read quickly through it. <clears throat> and you get done with it. And you say, well, okay, I finished the chapter. If you're preaching through it, you, you, you just kind of conclude it, and you don't say very much about it. But we're going to spend the whole message on verse 10 to verse 14. And uh, so follow with me uh, in your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 10 through verse 14. But the God of all grace... He has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while to make you perfect, establish you, strengthen you, and settle you. Some translations translate those words where it says perfect to restore you, where it says establish to strengthen you, make you firm and to make you steadfast. So that's the rendering of the NIV translation. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus or Silas, he is the amuensis, the one who was the penman, the one who wrote Peter, dictated it to him by Silas or Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, I suppose, have written briefly exhorting and testifying that is the true grace of God in which you stand. The church that is in Babylon, elected together with you, greets you. So does Mark, my son, greet you one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you and all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time together this morning, and we would pray you would lead us and you would guide us, Father, and we pray that what we look at this morning, uh, that you will bless it to our hearts, Father. We pray, Father, we know that sometimes the flesh is strong, and uh, we pray, Father, that as we see truth, we will seek to put into practice and seek to honor you and live for you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We used to live in this area many, many years ago. Uh, we were married at Grace Gospel Chapel in Gilbertsville, Pennsylvania, just down the, the road a little bit, down 100. And uh, we lived there, and we ministered there. And uh, we got to know a brother. Maybe some of you will remember him. Some of the older saints here will remember Lorenz Stevens. He was an older brother when I was there. But Lorenz was about 77 years old when I was there. We would go to the Lancaster Mission and the Reading Mission, Rescue Mission. And uh, he would preach, or sometimes he'd lead singing, and I'd preach. And, and we would drive together. And uh, he would say to me sometimes, he would say, he'd say, I want to finish my race well. I thought, well, you're doing pretty good. You know, you're, you're active, 77 years old, getting up, going out to the mission, preaching, teaching, and so forth. But I never forgot that. I always said, I want to finish my race well. And I think that's what this chapter is about. It's about running the race and finishing the race well. Um, the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 20, Neither I count my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry I received to preach, to testify of the grace of God. And uh, and so, running the race is very important. And he's writing to these believers, and part of uh, the background to these believers that First Peter is, is being addressed to are those who are uh, in a period of suffering, a period of opposition, some difficulty. They've left their Jewish believers, they left Israel or Judea, and they came into this area, we know from chapter 1 what area they lived in, in Cappadocia and Bithynia and, uh, and Pontus, Galatia. And these areas are northern. This is the northern part of modern-day Turkey. This is where they lived. And as you go through chapter by chapter, you see there's opposition. Chapter 1 speaks about trials. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 speaks about opposition and persecution that they went through. And chapter by chapter, uh, there's an address to the suffering and to endure the suffering and to go on in the suffering. And so as we come to the end of the chapter, in chapter 5, end of the book, in the end of chapter 5, I believe that Peter's going to give them an, an, an exhortation to run well and to finish well. And that's a good exhortation for us. That's a good exhortation for me. You know, in Florida, we have a lot of retired people that come down. I don't know if you know that. The average age in Florida is, uh, I don't know, Vincent, it's, it's a, little, a little older. It's even older than my age. Um, St. Petersburg, not far from us, I think the average age is 80, 80 years old or 85 years old, something like that. But a lot of times Christians come, and they come to relax. They just come to attend the meetings. But they're not... They're not finishing well. They're not giving themselves their all to it. And so here in this chapter, that's what he's saying. He's saying, run the race well. I heard a story and uh, uh, about a sports writer who was covering the Boston Marathon. And uh, some of these marathon runner uh, races often have a lot of Kenyan runners coming. And Kenyan runners are among the best in the world. Uh, it's usually... They usually uh, finish first, second, third, and maybe all of those. The Kenyan runners are just tremendous in running, and that's just that's known throughout the world. And uh, so, at one point, a sports writer came to a Kenyan runner and said, "Why is it that so many great long-distance runners come from Kenya?" Uh, 
And so this, this runner from Kenya wanted a little fun with the sports writer, I think. And he said, it must be the road signs. And so he said, what do the road signs say? He said, the road signs say, beware of lions. <laughs> I like that. You know, in the Christian life, you've got lions, too. In the Christian life, you've got opposition, too. You've got challenges, too. And those challenges can make us run better. You know, I would imagine in Kenya, those road signs, if that's true, I know you could ask somebody from Kenya, but, um, but you can either make someone stay in their house and not run, or make you run better. And so I think Paul is, and Peter is writing to these, these Christians to run well. And so we want to look together with you at some exhortations and some resources that, that Peter, the Apostle Peter, is giving to these believers. And we see some of them in verse 10 and verse 11. Look at verse 10 with me. Some of the, I think there's six things. Six things that uh, Peter is giving these believers to help them to run the race well. The first thing we see is he says, after speaking about uh, your adversary, the devil, he says, goes around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He says, resist steadfast the afflictions and so forth. And then he says this, but, can we have an exhortation? But the God of all grace. That's the first one. The God of all grace. And I think this is a very important thing. Uh, I think there's there's different ways to think about grace. I think for a lot of Christians, uh, grace is a very vague idea. We're not really sure how to put it all together. Um, grace is a very broad idea. There's a, there's a restoring grace, and Peter experienced the restoring grace of the Lord Jesus Christ when Peter uh, went and warmed his hands by the fire, and uh, someone there came up to him and said, you're one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus. He said, no, I'm not. Another one came up and said, you're one of the followers of the Lord Jesus, aren't you? And he said, no, I'm not. A little girl came up. It says a maid girl came up. And says, you're one of the disciples, one of the followers of the Lord Jesus. And it says, with swearing and cursing, he denied the Lord. And it says that he went out from that courtyard where the fire was, and he wept bitterly. After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and his 40-day ministry, one of the things he said to his disciples, he said, go tell Peter that I am in Galilee. I want him to come. The Lord Jesus comes, chapter 21, and uh, he's at the seashore. And John says, it's the Lord. And Peter, as he sees the Lord, he jumps into the water and he swims out to him. You know, it's interesting. I think Peter must have been a big, big, strong, burly, powerful man. We don't know. We don't read that in Scripture. But from that passage, there's Peter. They're fishing. They get this great catch of fish. And it says two or three of the boats are bringing that catch to shore. And as Peter is dove into the water, he's, he's come to shore already. And the Lord Jesus says to Peter, draw the catch to shore. Peter goes and gets the net. It says Peter goes and he brings it himself. He draws the net himself full of fish. That's pretty 
Well, that's probably pretty hard to do. But he's restored. He have the restoring grace of the Lord Jesus. Paul often speaks about the saving grace we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's a saving grace. But there's another kind of grace. There's a strengthening grace. And it's interesting how often the Bible speaks about grace that strengthens us. And I think that's the kind of grace that, that, that Peter is talking about here. A strengthening grace. In Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 8, he says, Be established in grace. And that's the King James rendering. Some of the modern translations say, Be strengthened in grace. It says at the end of Second Peter, Grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Second Timothy, chapter two and verse one, it says, "My son, he says, my son, be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ." There's a strengthening grace. It's a grace that strengthens us in our Christian life, and I think that's what he's speaking about here in this passage. Paul calls calls God the God of all mercies and the God of all comfort, but here. Peter calls him the God of all grace. And later in the same section, he says, the true grace of God in which we stand. We have a standing in grace. And that's something that's something very strong and reassuring in our lives. We don't have to create our standing. Some Christians, and I was a little bit that way in my Christian life, my early Christian life, we live for the Lord. We seek to be as faithful as we can to the Lord. Because as we come to him with access, we feel like we've got to meet a certain standard or else we can't come to the Lord. We have to live up to a certain standard and when we fall during the week, we feel like we can't approach the Lord because we are a little bit um, disappointed. We feel like the Lord's disappointed in us and doesn't want to hear our prayers, doesn't want to answer our prayers. We say, how can the Lord use us in service when we look at some of our our failures during the week? I was listening to a sermon by Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapels. It was in 1980 he gave the message. He said, in his earlier days, he said, this is how he was. At the end of the week, he didn't feel like he could Approach the Lord. But we have a standing in grace. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. It says, by, we're justified by faith and we, and, and, and we come into and we have access in a grace in which we stand. We have a standing. We come, after we come to faith in the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus teach, uh, uh, treats us as sons. We come into a standing of grace. We always have access. In my home, I'm sure in your home too, hopefully it was true, in the home that you grew up in, I could always go to my father. I was a child. I was a son in the home. My father could be asleep. In the middle of the night, I was afraid. I had a nightmare. Whatever it was, I could go into his room. I could tap him in the shoulder, and I'd wake him up, and he wouldn't say, get out of here. He wouldn't say, get lost. He wouldn't say that. He would say, what is it? What do you need? 
He would treat me in grace, and he, I always had access to him. My mother did the same way. Whatever she was doing, if I had a need, I had a, whatever it was, I always had access as a son. Now, there's times that we sin, and there's times there's fellowship that's broken. I lived in New Jersey. I lived in Homedale, New Jersey, and I remember I'd go out when it was snowing. New Jersey is like this, you know, it snows and then it melts and then there's dirt and it gets muddy and dirty and the snow turns brown and slushy. I remember coming in. Back in the days that I was a boy, around the front door you had a big piece of plastic. I don't know if people do that today. Big plastic. When I came in, my father would say, take those shoes off. You can't walk around the house with those shoes, with those boots. And the same thing in our Christian life. We've got to Sometimes we have to confess our sins and get right with the Lord. But we always have access. We always have this access in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I think, that's a, that's a strengthening grace that we have in the Lord Jesus. That strengthens these believers to know you always have access with the Lord Jesus Christ. I came across recently a quotation by Martin Luther. And this quotation, just to me, shows the wonderful grace of God. He said this. He said, When I look at myself, I say, How can I be saved? But when I look at Christ, I say, How can I ever be lost? I like that. When we look at ourselves sometimes, we say, How could God ever love me? How could He ever use me? How could He ever answer my prayers? But when I look at Christ, and look what He has done, they say, how can I ever be lost? How can he not ever answer my prayers? How can he not ever use me when I look at the great, the God of all grace? So this is one of the first things he says to these believers. Grow in grace and you have strength in the God of all grace. But the next thing he says in this passage, he says, this God of all grace who has called us into his eternal glory. That's something else. We have the God of all grace, and as these believers are serving and they're having opposition, there's affliction, and there's difficulty, and there's persecution. He says, have your focus. Remember your focus on something very, very important. Focus on the future. The more we focus on ourselves, and the more we focus on this world... And we might more we focus on all the many other things. But when we focus on the Lord, that's such an important thing. When we focus on the future, when we focus on heaven, and we focus on the God of heaven, that's such an empowering kind of thing. And he's saying, your focus should be on that. He says here in this passage, who has called us into his eternal glory? It's a wonderful passage. And... Uh, in John chapter 17 and verse 24. So the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And uh, the Lord Jesus is praying to his Father. He says, Father, I want those that you've given me to be where I am, that they might behold my glory. He's praying for you and me. That they may be with me. John 14 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my father's house are many mansions. If it was not so, he would have told you. I go to prepare a place. And if I go, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He wants us to be in glory with him. He's called us unto his glory. He's promised us unto his glory. He promises that we'll be in a place with him of all glory. And he says he wants us to focus on that. He wants us to think about that. The Apostle Paul in John John 15, his great resurrection chapter, he says, he says this, he says, If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. If, if all that we have ends in this world, the end of our lives is this world, no future hope, we are of all men most miserable. In First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians four, he says, and we quote some, we quote this verse sometimes at a funeral. We don't sorrow as others who have no hope. Christians are Christians who those who have hope. That that's what he's talking about. Our future blessed hope is to be with the Lord Jesus one day in heaven. It's a great great motivation. It's a great great object that we can have. Focusing on that future day. That helps us. That helps us to be stronger and to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard a story, and it was uh, two older men, and they decided to go to a minor league baseball game. And there would be fireworks. It was in the summertime, there would be fireworks afterwards. And they go to this game. And uh, in the game, and as the game proceeds, they decide to go to the concession stand and get a glass of beer. And then they go to get another glass of beer. A little bit more, and pretty soon they get kind of well-saturated in the beer that they were drinking. And their speech begins to get slurred, and they drink some more, and then the fireworks come. I don't know who won the game, but the fireworks come, and one of the guys turns to his friend, and he says this. He says, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. You know, we as Christians, we know it gets a lot better. That's the motivation they have. Life will get, and our eternal life will get a lot better one day. One day we'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And that's a great, great motivation. Once you take your Bibles, keep your finger there, and turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. I look forward to this. I look forward to, of all the Bible, of all of Scripture, I just look forward to chapter 11, verses 15 and 16 of Revelation. You know, you will be there when we dis- when we look at this passage. It's a passage about, about you and I. We will be there when this takes place. And this is a great thing to focus upon. And that's what Peter's telling these believers. Focus on this. Focus on eternity. Focus on heaven. Focus on that one future day. Of all that happens in this world, focus on that future day. Here in chapter 11, as you go through the book of Revelation, and uh, our Wednesday nights we're studying the book of Revelation, it's challenging and it's very, very encouraging. And uh, I think we're all enjoying it, uh, studying through Revelation. We're not in chapter 11. We think we just, uh, we're almost in chapter 11. 
And you have the seal judgments, these horrific judgments that come upon the earth. And then we have the trumpet judgments, and you have the bowl judgments. These three are great judgments that take place in the middle part of the tribulation. And uh, But here, in verse 15, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, <coughs> and it's going to unfold the last judgment of the seal judgment unfolds the trumpet, and the last trumpet judgment unfolds the vile or bowl judgments. But here, as the trumpet sounds, as the seventh angel sounds his seventh trumpet, something special happens. And you and I will be there when this happens. And we look forward to that day. I hope you look forward to that day. A wonderful, wonderful, amazing day. It'll be, I think, the highest point of your eternal existence. will be this, this day, this point. Verse 15, it says... When this angel blows that trumpet, it says in this passage, you and I will be in heaven. The rapture will have taken place prior to the tribulation period, and you will be in heaven. And you will be seated, will be seated on thrones in the closest proximity to the Lord Jesus in heaven. And when this, this trumpet is sounded, it says there's voices in heaven. I don't know if there are angels, other angels uh, announcing this, but notice what it says in verse 15. They say the kingdom, some translations render the kingdoms of this world, is become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. At this point, he is saying, at this point, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to exercise his power He's going to take power to himself. He's going to slowly set in order his everlasting kingdom. And he will reign on this earth. So it says in verse 15, and he shall reign forever and ever. And slowly from this point on to the end of chapter 19 of Revelation, we see the Lord Jesus putting down all the forces of the Antichrist, and he begins to slowly defeat him and take power to himself. And he becomes the king of kings and the lord of lords. When that announcement is made, look at verse 16. Right at that moment, verse 16, and the 24 elders, sometimes it says the 4 and 20 elders. The 4 and 20 elders are a representative number of believers. Now keep your finger on that part of Revelation. Turn with me to chapter 5. In verse 8 it says, The twenty-four elders, having each one of them having golden bowls full of incense, and having harps, these bowls full of incense are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy. Now, notice what it says about these 24 elders. These aren't, these aren't angels. These aren't the living creatures. These are Christians. These are believers who at one time were on earth and now have been redeemed by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and he died on the cross of Calvary. And it says in verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For thou, for you were slain. 
and have, you have redeemed us, these 20, for this representative, large representative number, and we know it's a large representative number, because notice what we, what we read. These 24 elders mentioned in verse 8, It says, Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Now, how many of them? How many are in this representative number? Notice what he says. He redeemed us to God by thy blood of every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Made us unto God a kingdom of priests, and we shall reign on the earth. In First Chronicles chapter 24, there were 24 courses of priests. The priesthood was divided into 24 courses, and they would serve in the temple at different times. They were the whole body of the priesthood in Old Testament Israel. And he's taking this picture. This is, he says here in chapter 5. He's made us unto God kingdom of priests, this 24 is a represent number of all the believers. Now go back with me to chapter 11. He has called us unto his eternal glory to see things like this, to behold his glory. Look at verse 16. And when this announcement is made, and these, all those who are redeemed, that's you and I, redeemed from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Notice what it says. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones. That's amazing. We will be in the closest proximity to Christ in heaven. I say sometimes, I'd, I'd be happy if I get into the gate and have my, my back to the warning track of the inside wall of New Jerusalem. But Christ has come closer. Come past those four living creatures, come past those 10,000 times, the thousands of angels come closer and closer and closer and places us in the closest proximity to him. Notice what it says. And the four and twenty elders who sat before God on their thrones were sitting right before God, before Christ, on his throne. And when this announcement is made, it says this. They get off their thrones, they fall on their faces, and they worship God. And we're told in the rest of the chapter, what they say is they worship God. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who art and was and art to come, because you have taken to yourself great power and has reigned. We're going to see that. He's called us unto his eternal glory. Let's go back to First Peter. Chapter 5. God of all grace. What a motivation. Called us into his eternal glory. What a great motivation. And then he says this, By the Lord Jesus Christ. By the salvation. How does it all take place? By the salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, salvation is not automatic. It doesn't take place because we're born. It doesn't take place. Sometimes you go to a funeral... And uh, the minister or the pastor sometimes speaks about a person who had no interest in Christ, never went to church, 
speaks about that person as though he was a wonderful believer. But we find out, no, it's not automatic. It's not because you were born. It comes because you had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You acknowledge that you've been a sinner. Each one of us in this room who knows the Lord Jesus, we acknowledge our lost condition before the Lord and that there was nothing we could do to ever save ourselves. There's no work we could ever do to save ourselves. There's no going to church, being baptized, doing good works, giving money to the church, whatever good work we can think in our minds. That's not how we're saved. But we acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge his death for us on the cross of Calvary. And when we acknowledge and place our faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus, he saves us. He takes our sins and he removes us from us as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our sins from us. And he transforms our lives. There's a wonderful verse in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 9. He says, I am the door. Any man, any man by me that enters in shall be saved. Salvation is open to any man, any man or woman. But it's through Christ. It's through Christ. This morning we, we read, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Eternal life is by the Lord Jesus Christ. We read that here in this passage. But then it says this, after you have suffered a while, after you have suffered a while, you know, he says they're going to suffer. And sometimes suffering is instructive to us. You know, it's interesting in the Bible how often we read about suffering and how often we read that is instructive to us. And David says, he says, I thank God that I was afflicted that I might learn. Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I was given a thorn in the flesh that I might not be exalted above measure. That I, that, that, that I would not have pride. I might not be exalted in pride. And he says to them, he says that you, after you have suffered a while. Romans 8.28 says this, that all things work together for good to those who love God are called according to his purpose. Now, not all things are good, but all things work together for good. And so he's saying to them, these things you're going through are instructive things. They're teaching things in our lives. And notice what it says in this verse. He says, after you have suffered a while, notice the last part of verse 10. It does something. This suffering, if I'm reading this verse rightly, it says, after you suffer a while, look what it says, to make you. This suffering is going to make you into something. Now, no one loves suffering. I don't know if anybody likes to suffer. Now, I know athletes, they train, and they suffer in their training so they can be better and more conditioned in their, but I don't think they even like that. None of us like suffering. But notice what God does in that. To make us, he says, perfect. Restore us. And to strengthen us. 
to make us firm and to make us steadfast, to do these great changes in our lives. He says to these these believers, he said, God, through this suffering you're going through, God's going to make you into something. He's going to make you stronger so God can use you greater. So as you go through suffering, God is molding you and making you into something that he can use, use for his eternal his eternal glory. And then verse 11 says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to close with a little, little illustration. We were talking about suffering one time to a to a believer, an older believer, and uh, he he had a, a workshop and he likes to build things and repair things. And he said, "Let me tell you my understanding of suffering." And so he said, "If I take a nail, a large nail, and I have a hammer, and I strike it with one blow into a a beam, a wooden beam in my in my workshop." He said, I can hang maybe a, a pair of gloves on it, maybe an extension cord, but nothing very heavy. But I take another blow to that, that nail. I can hang something weightier on it. But if I strike it four, five, six, seven, and it's into that wood much further, I can hang anything in my workshop, any tool on that nail. And that's how it is in the Christian life. We go through God matures us. There's something about going through some of the trials and difficulties. God matures us. And we say at a point in our lives, all glory be to God forever and ever. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the way you save us. We thank you that by grace are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves. We thank you that the Christian life that we have access to grace and one day will be and will behold your glory. Keep your eyes on these things as we run this great race, a race you've laid out before us, the race you want us to live. And Father, may we touch lives and may we win souls and may we make an impact with our lives on those around about us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.